Our sermon text today is Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, and this is a, a helpful passage, I think. In fact, um, really the whole book of Galatians is helpful for this reason, because it helps remind us that, that being in the church and, and living a, a good and moral life is decidedly not the main focus of the gospel. And it's certainly not going to gain one salvation. This basic misunderstanding was a problem that has existed not just in the first century church in Galatia. It's a problem, I dare say, that exists in the 21st century church in America. And perhaps even amongst many of you here today. So this is a helpful passage for us today, I think. For that reason, I, I urge you to heed the words of Scripture this morning directed to the Galatians, directed to us. And to that end, would you first pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask that you would help us to hear your word today. Speak to us, not just through the words I say, but even more through your living and active word and through your spirit at work in our midst. We pray that you would lead us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We pray that you would do that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. This is the inspired word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever seen the trucks driving around town from the moving company, two men and a truck? I, I think it's really kind of a brilliant name, a brilliant marketing campaign, as you will, if you will, because, because it just gets around all the nonsense, right? You might have a fancy name or a fancy slogan, but they say, no, this is who we are. We know what you need. We're going to provide it. You need two men and a truck. That's who we are. It's very direct, very simple. I like it, that, that pattern of two men and a truck. I was thinking about that, and I thought of another thing. Perhaps you've played this game before. Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? You know, the idea in the game is you're sitting around with a group of people, perhaps, and, and you tell them three statements about yourself, two of which are true, 
and one of which you've completely fabricated, right? And then they try to guess which one is the one that you've made up. And it's a fun little thing to do, a fun game to play together. Um, you know, you can, you can come up with whatever you want. You think of the most outrageous thing yourself and then think of, think of some things. Like for, for me, if we were playing this, I, I would tell you that uh, I preached my first sermon in church when I was still in high school and that I've twice preached at a Catholic church and that I once preached at the General Assembly of our denomination. You'd have to guess which one was not true out of those three. I'm not going to tell you now. We can talk about it later. You can think about it. <laughs> two men in a truck, two truths and a lie. If we were going to come up with a sermon title for this week's sermon, it would really be kind of our outline of what we're going to look at. I'd call it Two Truths, or Two Curses and a Blessing. Two Curses and a Blessing. We look at verses 10 through 12, we see the curse of the law. In verse 13, we see the curse that Christ became. And in verse 14, we see the blessing of Abraham. First, the curse of the law. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, it's not saying here, we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand this, Paul's not saying that, that there is nothing good about the law. He's not saying the law is completely useless in every way and we should just get rid of it. In fact, there's much to commend the law to us. Uh, he, it, the law displays the character of God and in so doing it shows us our sins so that we might repent of them. It directs us in holiness. It, it restrains evil. There are all kinds of good things that the law does. Paul is not saying that the law is completely terrible in all ways, but what Paul is condemning here and really throughout the entire book is a legalistic attitude that thinks that by the law I might be saved. If I keep all the law that God has given me, that's the way that I could be saved. And and, and so we work toward that, thinking that somehow our behavior can attain a level of righteousness that would be enough to, to appease a holy God. You'll notice Paul doesn't say, those who keep the law are under a curse. Rather, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law. Are under a curse. Those who rely upon it, those who depend upon it. We've talked a lot in the past about how faith is not just merely a, a mental awareness of something, right? It's not just, just saying I believe in it cognitively, but, but true faith is depending upon, relying upon Christ Jesus. And he says those who rely upon works are under a curse. There's two parts of this. He says, says all who rely on works. He, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence here, right? He says, everyone who decides they're going to try to be holy in and of themselves are under the curse. There's not anybody out there who, who's got this thing figured out that, that can say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit better than everybody else has, right? Furthermore, he says they're under a curse. And the idea of be cursed isn't, isn't an idea that originated with Paul. It's something that, that dates back 
far beyond that. We read about it earlier, didn't we? As we looked at Deuteronomy 27 and we read through those many cursings together. We found them there. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And the people shall say amen. Right? We, we read those very words. You know, it's interesting to note that, that when somebody was found guilty of, of, of a sin against God to the point where where they would receive uh, lashes. Paul talks how five times he received the 40 la lashes, less one, minus one. The idea there was, was that they, they believed that if they gave somebody 40 lashes, with the 40 times with the cat of the nine tails, the, the damage inflicted upon them would be so much that it would, it would take their very lives, and so that they, they, they would just give them 39, right? We're going we're gonna to take you up to the point of death and then relent, right? And... and what the synagogue manuals of the time stated was that, that if somebody was being whipped in this way, the person who was flogging them should, as he is whipping them, read the curses of the law out to them. So that as Paul was five different occasions whipped in this manner, he heard these words read to him as he's being whipped, as, as the, the snap of the whip clapped down upon his back and the sting was felt throughout there he would hear cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law it's interesting that paul quotes that very verse here to the galatians the same verse that he had heard so many times he he quotes directly to them but it's from a totally different perspective isn't it because Paul realizes that there is a problem there is not one of us who abides by and does all the things that are in the law right Randy made that point to us when when he was introducing it and when when he prayed afterwards that we we can't of our own strength do all the things that are in the law and that is that is what's required of us right it says cursed is, is he who does not do all the things in the law all the things the various parts of the law now in the old testament in the old covenant the law was could be broken up into three different parts there was the moral law the law that said you know this is right and this is wrong and you shouldn't do these things and you should do these things it's the law that was codified in the ten commandments right now now we need to realize that that that's not where that law began it didn't just begin there. When Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and says, thou shalt not kill, the people weren't like, oh my goodness, you're kidding me. We thought that was okay. You know, thou shalt not steal. Oh man, I'm really going to have to change the way I'm doing it. No, they knew that this was wrong already. Right? It was already wrong before he brought down the Ten Commandments. This was the law that is, that is in the very mind of God and as we are created in the image of God, it is written upon our hearts. It's, it's what can be called the natural law, right? These, these things we know are right and wrong if we look deep enough into ourselves. And so the moral law was true for all times. It was true before the Ten Commandments. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true today. There are two other categories of law, though, that are a little bit different. One was the civil or judicial law. You need to remember that Israel existed as the people of God, but also existed as a nation. And so there were the, the national laws that existed. And there was certainly a great deal of overlap between, between the 
the moral law and the ceremonial law and the civil law, but, but the national laws as such don't necessarily apply to us because we are a different nation. We are not the nation of Israel as a political entity. So there are principles that apply there that we see the person of God in, but and we should certainly apply to our own lives, but those, those are different. Those have been abrogated, taken away, as have the ceremonial laws. There were ceremonial laws that were, were dealing with the purity and, and uh, the holiness of the people in, in a ritual sense. And those have found their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And so, so those no longer are, are for us to keep because they, they pointed toward Christ and we no longer have to look at these as Hebrews taught as, as, as the shadows that they were or the, the figures that they were because we have the, the reality, the substance in Christ Jesus. So those have, have fallen away as well. But, but if we decide that we want to live according to the law, then all these things come back upon us and we need, need to keep them all. And that's what he's saying. But, but, but even if we still get rid of those first two and just say the moral law, there's not one of us who keeps that, is there? James tells us whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Does that seem unfair to you? You know, Think about it. If you kept the law in every area of life, it just tripped up once. You're guilty before God, condemned before God, damned before God. Does that seem fair? You know, I feel like that's not fair, right? I mean, I'm so much better than everybody else at that point. But God says, no, you are not holy. And holiness is what is required. It's like, it's like this. Let's say, let's say you were, uh, I've seen a thing where, where you've got like a, a big pit, let's say, and there's these ravenous lions and tigers and, and these animals that would just, just tear you apart if you're there. And, and you were hanging above them by a chain. Okay, and, and it's a really strong chain. The links of it are, are made with the strongest metal, which is good, right? I mean, we're all glad about that. And they're, they're hooked together in the finest craftsmanship. And it's, it's the best chain ever made. Except for one link, right? You know, there's a thousand links in the chain. And, and one of them, well, it's just a paper clip, okay? You're all right, though, right? Because, I mean, all those other links are perfect, right? It's the best chain. I mean, it's a great chain, except for that one place. Who wants to be hanging from that chain? Not me. Because it only needs to break in the one place for the whole chain to break, right? Right? It's just that one place breaks, the whole chain is broken. And that's how the law is. If we've broken the law in one place, we are lawbreakers, Guilty under the law. We stand condemned. So what's the question? Or what's the answer? Should, should we just try harder? No. <laughs> we like to think that God helps those who help themselves. But the Bible tells us something altogether different. It tells us that God helps those who can't help those, themselves. Those who have forsaken helping themselves. Those who have given up on that. And those who look to him and trust in him completely. God says, actually, for those who try to help themselves, they bring the curse of the law upon 
themselves. Now it is evident, verse 11 tells us, that no one is justified before God by the law. Not only the best people, not most or some or even a few people. No, no one is justified before God by the law. Because what is required of us is complete holiness. Let's just take a quick run through scripture here. Leviticus 19.1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 5, where he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you just need to be perfect like God is perfect. That's all. Hannah in Samuel, 1 Samuel 2 says, there is none holy like the Lord. (laughs) There's none besides you. You can see how that causes a problem then. So we look at Psalm 130, where the psalmist rhetorically asks, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? None of us. Not a one. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one, says the psalmist in Psalm 14. And so Paul writes in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we have a time of confession in our service every week. Because we need to confess our sin. We need to be reminded of the fact that we are not holy. God is, we are not. This causes a problem. Something needs to be done about it. Sometimes people will ask, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? And there's an assumption in there right, that the, the bad things that have happened to people you know, or perhaps even to yourself, right, you are assuming that those have happened to a good person. Right? But the truth is, more like R.C. Sproul Jr. puts it, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once. And he volunteered for it. Because Christ, Jesus, is the only truly good person. The only righteous person. So if we are going to be righteous, it cannot be with our own righteousness. And verse 11 tells us, the righteous shall live by faith, by trusting in him. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Right? When, when he says the righteous shall live by faith, he's quoting Habakkuk 2, where Habakkuk says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Right? The opposite of a, of a person living by faith is a person who is puffed up, who is prideful, who thinks, I can do it. And so we need to know that we can't. We need to remember that righteousness comes through faith, as we saw repeatedly over these past few weeks. As it was with Abraham, who trusted in God. And it was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. Not it was a righteous act, but it was credited to him as righteousness because he trusted in God. And we must likewise have faith in God, trusting in the perfect work of the one who is truly righteous, Christ Jesus, who made that great exchange for us where he gave us his righteousness and took our sin upon himself. In so doing, we are saved. Remember that he took our sin upon himself. It's not just that we get his righteousness, but he took our sin. He became 
the curse. Our second point, we're under the curse of the law, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He says he redeemed us. He, it means he purchased us back. Right? We were enslaved to sin and to death, and he purchased us out of slavery. He paid the, the ransom price, as it were, so that we no longer would be enslaved. Peter writes, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ came and paid the price. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have just been served there, but he came to serve us, and he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, verse 13 tells us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This harkens back to Deuteronomy again, Deuteronomy 21. A man, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now, it might seem at first thought that this is kind of a stretch to say, wait, Jesus wasn't hanged from a tree. He was on a cross, and that's a little bit different. And, and aren't you kind of stretching things here, Pete? I, it's not me making the correlation, right? It's the Apostle Paul here under the inspiration of Scripture, or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as is all Scripture, writing here in Galatians 3, who, who makes this connection. And it's not just him either. Because throughout the early church, this was constantly the idea. If somebody was crucified, they, they spoke of him as being hanged on a tree. In Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Acts 10, 39. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Acts 13, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. You see, this, this would no doubt have been a great offense to the Jews, would it have not? Right? To, to understand that, wait, you're, you're saying that, that we need to trust in one who was hanged on a tree and died? Wait, I thought that that was a curse. How, how could this so-called Messiah that you are following have been, been cursed by God? And the apostles don't run from that. They don't hide from that. They don't deny it. They claim it for all that they have. And they say, yes, he was cursed. He was a curse. He became a curse for us. He bore our curse. We should have been cursed on the tree. We should have received the full wrath of God. And yet we were pardoned from that because Christ received it for us. This is offensive. It's a... Uh, it's a rock of stumbling, as Isaiah put it, and as was echoed in Romans 9 and 1 Peter 2. The, the Greek phrase there actually is a scandalon. We get our word scandal from it. It is scandalous that Christ died on the cross. And the gospel will scandalize us. It is a scandalous thing. We, we can't quite 
get our minds around it. It's offensive to us. But it's what he did. In 1 John chapter 4, we see this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He, he poured out his wrath upon him, and his wrath was satisfied in the payment that Christ made. That is the gospel. And as a result, we can receive the blessing of Abraham, our third point. Christ became a curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Last week, we mentioned in verse 8 that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's interesting. Gentiles are simply those who were not the Jews. They were not the descendants of Abraham. They were not the chosen ones, not the children of the king, not holy in the eyes of God, not his people. But do you see what God has done in Christ Jesus? He has brought the Gentiles, those who were not physical descendants of Abraham, you and me, into the family of God in Christ Jesus. Whenever we see that phrase, remember, in Christ Jesus, the idea is in union with him, connected with him, so that we have all that is his. We share it with him. We're brought together. And, and how does he do this? But through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is the distinguishing mark that we are his in much the same way as, as you see on my left hand, a wedding ring. You see it there. You look at me and you know that I am married. I belong to Aaron. She is my wife. I am her husband. And we are bound together as one. In the same way, when we receive the Holy Spirit, it is, it is the distinguishing mark. It is, it is the promised spirit, the guarantee that we are God's, and he is ours, and we are bound together, and all that is Christ's becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours so that we are blessed in and through this promised spirit of faith. And we have received the spirit of adoption, Paul tells us in Romans 8 by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, there was a promise that God made to Abraham, wasn't there? He made a promise to him that, that he would bless him and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And another promise that went along with it, that if Abraham, who had no children at the time, would look up at the stars and if he could count the stars of the sky and if he could count the grains of sand on the seashores, his descendants would be even more numerous than that. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For it is, as the apostle says, you, Calvary Presbyterian Church, you, the church, who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's all about God and what he has done. Not about what we do, not about expecting to earn his blessing, but rather realizing in Christ Jesus we already have that blessing, and so we live out our lives to his glory. We honor him in all we do. We desire to respond to his love with love for him and love for neighbor. In closing, I I just want to share these words from John Barrage, the 18th century Anglican priest and hymnist. They're often attributed actually to John Bunyan, but most scholars think it was actually John Barrage in the 18th century who said this. He said, this little ditty that he put together, run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. Sure of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, clinging to his cross, let us fly high upon the wings of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for all that you have done, for it is truly you who have done it, not us. We pray that you would drive this truth deeper into our hearts, that all that we are and all that we do would be an expression of our gratitude. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you rise with me now as we sing... Hymn number 327.